Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Today we've got a one-on-one conversation with somebody who's got particular experience and perspectives on half a dozen of the stories that are breaking in the news right now. Peter Strzok is a former U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation agent who was the Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division uh, during the initial investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. How are you today, Peter? Hey, David. It's great to see you. I'm doing all right. Good. Uh, Well, I can only imagine how you read the newspaper each day, uh, because every single day there's a story that must resonate with you. Um, And initially I thought, you know, there was a a story about Trump going around saying, uh, you know, I'm going to fire a bunch of folks in the FBI when I get there, and I'm going to clean house. And, uh, you know, um, we have DeSantis and a bunch of these other candidates mouthing something similar to this. And I, I want to get to that. Um, but today there's there's a story um, of uh, Jack Smith looking into the firing of Chris Krebs after the election. Um, uh, Chris Krebs uh, committed a terrible crime in Trump's eyes. He, he said the elections were fair. Um, and was, was, was forced out of office. Um, and, uh, you know, as everybody knows, you had, you know, personal experience with, um, Trump's desire to maintain the personal loyalty of essentially everybody in the federal government, um, for which he has never really been held to account. And I, I, you know, this this Chris Krebs story is sort of the first time I've seen anything that suggests uh, that the, you know, firing of officials might be something other than, you know, uh, a, a, you know, just a, a politically and ethically unpalatable act by the president. So I was wondering what your reaction was. 
No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it is important to Smith for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that, you know, here's yet another person who was in a position of expertise and knowledge telling the president and the American people, but telling the president there is no evidence of widespread fraud. This was the most free and fair election that our country has ever had, that these claims of interference, wherever they're coming from, locally, internationally, are not credible. And so on the one hand, it helps, I think, demonstrating that Trump knew that he had lost the election, that the claims were false. But then it also adds a, a layer of motivation. And, you know, I think the, the point you were making is that these were things Trump, it was not just, you know, I want to have loyalists. It is I am exercising the mechanisms of my power to retain power. It is, you know, so it's a, a direct transactional relationship there. And I think, you know, for Trump, it's not, he, the, the man doesn't hide anything that he is doing. He doesn't really hide his motivations behind it. He has a pattern of, you know, he goes to the, the, the norms which have been established over, you know, the entirety of our nation's history. He goes up to the edge as he has in his business life, but goes up to the edge of those norms, whether or not they correspond to legal norms or not. And he sees how far he can push and he does things. And upon seeing no sanction for that, he pushes a little further. And this isn't a surprise. I mean, he did that time and time and time again, whether it was firing Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, whether it was trying to get people to shut down Robert Mueller's investigation, you know, any number of things from taking, you know, breaking all the expectations of whether or not he should maintain the amount of business that he did, things like, you know, keeping the Trump Hotel in downtown Washington, D.C., getting insane amounts of money through visiting national and international figures coming in and renting suites at a time, all these different, wherever you look, Trump pushed the boundaries of what is and, and wasn't expected. And having found no sanction for doing so, particularly, you know, moving back to this issue of government employees, you know, you hear him making these statements of, you know, yeah, I'm going to like the specific thing, and we can talk about it later about those people investigating them. But broadly, when I come in, you know, I'm going to, you know, potentially institute like a, a loyalty test or a quote unquote citizenship test for every government employee to take to see, you know, where their political loyalties lie. And that, you know, attempts that he made at the end of his administration to radically increase the number of government employees subject to hiring and firing at the whims of the president, not just the layer of political appointees that exists now, but vastly expanding that into the government bureaucracy so that any senior leader from the FBI to the Department of Defense to the Department of Agriculture to the Department of Energy, if Trump doesn't like them, gone, no questions asked. So, you know, how far he'll be able to go without legal challenges, without some, you know, breaks on that attempted activity, I don't know, but he's very clear about what he wants to do. He wants to radically remake the federal government and replace professionals with loyalists. And I think what that creates is a bunch, I mean, a horrible mess. I think you're potentially would lose an extraordinary amount of expertise. I think you gain an extraordinary amount of potential corruption because you're creating a patronage system of, you know, a government bureaucracy. And he's very transparent about what he wants to do and how he's going to do it. So 
you know, I'm glad we're talking about it. I hope more people talk about it. I don't think, like, I had the, I had the advantage of growing up largely in the developing world and seeing just horribly malfunctioning bureaucracies. I think whether or not you grew up overseas, whether or not you've traveled to nations which don't enjoy, you know, for all its faults, our government runs remarkably smoothly. Our government runs with a remarkable lack of corruption. Is there, are there problems? Of course there are. Could it be improved? Of course it could. But if you compare that to any number of nations around the world, and when you just see the level of potential incompetence, the level of potential corruption that we could go to from where we're at now, that's something that I don't think a lot of Americans think about and that they really should. Because if Trump comes back into power, I have every expectation that he is going to demolish a lot of the professional infrastructure of the big B bureaucracy of the United States. And I don't, I don't use that in a negative sense. I'm using that in the sense of that, you know, there's, there's a huge infrastructure that, you know, runs our parks, delivers the mail and, and generally runs well um, and could get much, much worse. Yeah. And there's plenty of evidence that not only would Trump do this, he said he would do it. Um, uh, but that, once he had loyalists in place, it's not just that he would want them to stop meddling in his business. He would want to use them to strike out against his enemies, against people that he thought were disloyal, you know, which is, as, as you, um, you know, suggested a moment ago, this is um, a common occurrence in authoritarian states. Uh, and we've seen him do it. We've seen him do it with firings, with the IRS, with other organizations. Um, what, why do you think Jack Smith is after? I mean, I'm, I'm a little tired of the what's in Jack Smith's mind game, which is played on the media all around the clock. We can't know. But um, is it so much the firing um, of Chris Krebs or is it? the firing of Chris Krebs as, uh, you know, uh, uh, something to reveal the state of mind of the president or as part of a broader, um, uh, you know, effort to steal the election? That's a great question. I, you know, I don't, it's interesting to me too, because this whole, you know, the other thing that popped over the past 24 hours is this tape that Trump made uh, where he was discussing a document apparently related to war plans with Iran that he had that he said essentially I you know probably I should have declassified this when I could have but says a bunch of really incriminating things that line up very nicely with the elements of a crime of seven uh, title eighteen seven ninety three but the the point of that of mentioning that is this is something that Smith had at least as early as March maybe even earlier so as we see the things we're seeing it's like we're what. Jack Smith's playing the second quarter of a basketball game and we're watching the first quarter highlights. So, you know, we, and we don't even see all the first quarter. So when I look at Krebs, I, you know, it, that was an act, right? So when you look at various statutes, if you're trying to things, you know, if you're trying to say what taking an overt act to achieve something, some sort of, cons, you know, a, a conspiracy, an effort to, you know, it's staying in power is not a crime, right? But, you know, the, so the question is, what 
the if he were engaging in illegal activity to undermine the vote and then the certification of the vote and ultimately not move to inaugurating Joe Biden showing discrete acts that he took might be important for a number of reasons. So I don't know that I can say, you know, is it is 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 Jack Smith primarily interested in it because the firing of Krebs that Trump did, I mean, right, he did it by tweet. That was a Trump tweet. So that that is not something that John McAtee or Mark Meadows did. Trump did that. So you can say this is Trump fired him. So that is a direct act on Trump's part. Is that necessary and important in the filling a an element of a crime that Jack Smith is looking at? Or I, I mean I think it's that or and or demonstrating that, you know, to the extent Trump would say, Oh, I believe I won. I believe there was fraud. I wasn't asking Brad Raffensperger to find these votes because I was corruptly trying to uh, stay in power. I really believe there were this many votes out there. So is it, you know, is it trying to build evidence that Trump knew that wasn't true? I, I don't know which of those is more likely. I think they're both potentially likely. Um, and I don't know, you know, we, we, we find out about it in the public. And so, as you noted, everybody talks about it. So it assumes a certain importance and just because everybody's talking about it doesn't necessarily mean that I, I would hesitate to convey our level of interest in that with how, where that racks and sacks within Jack Smith's sort of echelon of things he's caring about and focusing on. Um, yeah. Clearly, and I was going to bring up this uh, issue of uh, the apparent um, uh, recording of Trump saying that he had classified materials in 2021, apparently a uh, secret document uh, pertaining to Iran uh, and war plans that he mentioned that he had to some people in his presence uh, in an effort, I think, to uh, counteract something that General Milley had said. Um, And the uh, assertion uh, of some people has been, well, this this demonstrates that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that, Jack Smith is uh, uh, involved in an Espionage Act case. Uh, this, you know, this proves that you know because of the way he's using this. Um, I, 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 I think some people may be going too far. I'm, I, you know, not an attorney, as I often point out here, but, but you know, it, it's, it strikes me that one of the things that uh, uh, that uh, is is possible here is that Trump was lying. You know, that Trump was saying he had this, like, I have classified documents that prove that Milley is intelligent, because that's the kind of bullshit that he would do. Now, having said that, apparently what he said also indicates that he understands the nature of classified documents and that he can't show them and so on and so forth. And so that may speak to his understanding of, 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 of the law regarding the use of classified documents, which may be material. Um, and again, we don't know. My guess is reading the paper, 
that somebody who appeared before the grand jury heard them use this document and that person told them, which seems like the only way to get through that. What was, what's your take on all that? I think that's the logical route. I think it was somebody who either the, uh, the woman who made the recording or somebody else who had it played during their testimony. People who go like grand jury secrecy one, the grand jurors are not supposed to talk about what they hear. Prosecutors are not supposed to talk about what they hear, but as a witness, if you go in, you're free to talk about everything that you were asked and said. So my suspicion is that either, one of the individuals who either the woman who made the tape and I'm forgetting her name or somebody who had that played and was asked questions about it, either they or their attorneys have gone to the and it's great scoop by CNN. And I know like the guardian and then quickly Washington post and New York times confirmed it. But you know, the question in my mind is this was at least, uh, you know, the news of this and DOJ having it and potentially using it in grand jury is a couple of months old at least by now. So the question is why now? Like what is the motivation for anybody to suddenly be talking about this as opposed to in March, April? Um, so there, there's a question in my mind, but look, the tape is, I agree with you. I think, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the thing that I think strikes me as the most sort of the biggest affront to our legal system and Trump's behavior regarding everything at Mar-a-Lago and the documents is his obstructive behavior. I, I at the end of the day, I think what, what, if I'm, you know, sitting there trying to say, okay, what do I try and persuade a jury? If I'm talking to you or talking to the American people and I say, what, what bothers you the most? What bothers me the most is somebody who had material that he shouldn't have extraordinary sensitive material. And we can come back to the classified aspect of it. But then despite being told repeatedly that he, it's not his, that it's the American people's, that it belongs to the National Archive. He nevertheless fought that for over a year, getting to the point where then it turned out that the material he had was so egregiously sensitive that it was referred to the Department of Justice, who then engaged in yet more months-long negotiation, culminating in a subpoena, where it really appears that there were, you know, the response to that was based on lies, that there had been a complete search, that everything had been returned, and that after that, we then saw, you know, the step of the government having to get a search warrant where they recovered even I mean, more material. I mean, so, I mean, if I can interject something there, because there's another aspect of this which doesn't get talked about that much. But it appears to me that the Department of Justice was showing him incredible deference and was showing incredible patience with this. And, you know, I, I, I say this in part because the other night I watched this HBO movie, Reality, which is the reality winner story. Um, about a woman who uh, mishandled one piece of classified information uh, that, as it happened, was not a piece that the Trump administration wanted out there. Uh, And within a couple of weeks, she was up to her ass in alligators. Um, You know, um, and, and here the FBI was like, and the Department of Justice was like, well, we'll ask you, we'll ask you again, we'll be patient. But, you know, I mean, and, and, and meanwhile, now there's, you know, videos of people in his, in his circle scurrying around with boxes, lying to the FBI, lying to um, DOJ. Um, now, now we have him in the sort of ultimate Karen, I want to speak to the manager move, uh, having his lawyer send a note to Attorney General Garland saying, we must speak about this. Um, I, I I don't know. It's it, I, I agree with you. The obstruction stuff seems very clear. I'm not sure about the nuances of the uh, Espionage Act, although yesterday that seemed to be the focus of many analysts. Yeah, and 
for yes, and I think yesterday the the existence of that tape. My, my concern was always, you know, one for the American people. For somebody who's not, you know, who didn't investigate the Espionage Act for twenty years or however long I did it, it it's not when the average citizen says, "Wait, you know, you're charging the you're charging the former president with the Espionage Act. Are you saying he's a spy?" It's like, and then you have to get down this long path of saying, "No, it's not necessarily that he's a spy. That encompasses mishandling of classified information." And oh, by the way, it gets complicated because as the president, unlike anybody else in the government, the president has the absolute authority to classify or declassify information. You know, the vice president can do it too, but nobody like that whole process comes from the power of the presidency. So it gets very. The, the narrative around it. Although the ex-president complex. has the ex-president, the, ex- the president has no right, authority, right? Exactly. And that's why this tape is so, because Trump has always said, oh, I declassified it with my mind, or there's some standing rule that the moment it left the Oval Office and went to the residence, it became declassified. Well, here on the tape, he's saying, I, allegedly, none of us have heard it, you know, I should have declassified this when I could have, essentially. So he is acknowledging that's on baloney. Like all his other excuses are baloney that he knows that there's a way to declassify things that he could have done that he didn't. And that all these other things fall apart. So I do think this tape in many ways strengthens the idea of, um, potentially bringing espionage act charges seven, seven ninety three, which is a, not the full full out espionage uh, statute, which is seven ninety four. But David, I think you, you, you had a really interesting point about the deference shown to Trump. And I'm reminded the Washington Post had an article probably four or five months ago at this point that recounted a debate between the FBI's Washington field office on the one hand and the Department of Justice and FBI headquarters on the other. And this was before DOJ and the FBI went and sought a search warrant for Trump's residence. And there was apparently a debate between those two camps about whether or not to actually go get a search warrant or not, or whether to simply, you know, let's just keep trying, let's keep negotiating with the attorneys. And that was really, I mean, it was surprising to me because I've never seen any sort of that granular level of detailed discussion within and between the FBI and DOJ in the public realm, but two, that there would be this reluctance and lack of aggressiveness and almost... I don't want to say fear because I don't know what motivated it on, on the part of the FBI. Usually it's, it's flipped. Usually the investigators are out in front, hard charging and DOJ typically is pulling them back saying, Hey, you know, slow down, be, let's be careful. Let's be thoughtful about this. And you had this role reversal and it brings back, you know, kind of to the, the, the sort of meta issue of what we're talking about. I really think that reluctance comes from four years of Trump and Barr beating the hell out of the FBI about anybody who had any role in investigating Trump, in pardoning people who were, you know, using the law and Department of Justice as a shield for Trump's, for Trump, first of all, and for his friends like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and everybody else, and then using the Department of Justice as a sword, you know, creating John Durham, who spent four years on nothing other than terrorizing all of these people, you know, a large number of them in the FBI, investigators who had been involved in um, matters in and around Trump. And despite all these dark, ominous comments out of Trump that Durham is, Durham is coming and Bill Barr hinting about all this nefarious, worst, you know, abuse of power in our nation's history, ends up with a four-year editorial and no evidence of any criminality. But what you did have was every single person in the FBI who worked on those cases being 
you know, turning on the news and hearing from a presidential tweet that they're going to go down to Guantanamo. That and everybody in the FBI watching those people who they know, who are their colleagues, their coworkers, their friends, their mentors, their subordinates, subconsciously or consciously saying, there's no way in hell I want to be subjected to that. And so when the time comes in the summer or whenever it was, 2022, right? About like, well, you know, Trump's been playing games. It's time to go get a search warrant. And you get the FBI back on its heels saying, oh, no, 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 no. That's very aggressive. Let's, we don't need to do that. Let's keep negotiating. No. Go get a search warrant. Matter of fact, get a search warrant six months earlier. This has been floating around, this nonsense failure to produce these documents, which are the government's, the people's property, has been going on for almost 18 months. Why are you why are you saying no to getting a search warrant? And it just strikes me as that is the result of four years of Trump and Barr essentially working the refs. Every yeah, and single it's not- time down the court. It's and it's not um, merely a case of uh, some obscure regulation in the National Archives and the mishandling of paper. Uh, it's got serious national security implications, particularly if and there were a significant number of highly classified documents. They may have been shown, or there may have been an intent to show them to anybody else, so the president might benefit in some way. And there are a number of countries and people that, that he came into contact with where that, that was the case. Let me ask you one last question on this thing, because you did spend so much time looking at these things. Um, this tape apparently refers to a conversation that took place at Bedminster, the president's New Jersey golf course. Um, uh, there was a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there was once a shot of people loading boxes in a plane headed for Bedminster. But to our knowledge, there was no search at Bedminster, no search at the Trump Towers and so forth. Does that mean there wasn't a search? And if there wasn't a search in places like that, given this case, how do you explain it? Um, I think so. So Trump allegedly had his attorneys, you know, after the fact, go in and search all the properties. I, I fully expect those were not particularly rigorous searches to the extent if Trump wanted to hide something he could have. I also think that if there were a federal search warrant that we would have heard about it, not from the government, but through Trump or somebody else, had there been a search of Trump Tower or Bedminster, that it would have um, been known publicly. Is it possible that occurred and it somehow has been kept under wraps? Maybe, although I think that's unlikely. Doesn't that seem like kind of gaping? Yeah, well, the the, the issue, of course, is like, you know, to, to get a... To get a search warrant, you've got to go to a judge and demonstrate facts reaching the probable cause standard that there is evidence of a crime there now. So it's not enough to sit. If, if you go to a judge and you say, look, Your Honor, we have this tape and it's Trump discussing this document. It sounds like he has it in his hands. And well, when was it? Well, it was back in March of 2020, when, 2021. 2021, right? yeah. Right. Okay. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's May or June of 2023. Why do you think it's still there? Well, you know, did it, was it returned? You know, have you identified an Iran document? So in other words, you've got to, you've got to go to the judge with information to say, I think there's classified information there now. And my suspicion is, they have we haven't seen what was the complete information that was in the warrant from Mar-a-Lago 
to demonstrate how the government thought there was classified information there at that moment. But they clearly did it. And, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny. You know, you remember the litigation with Eileen Stinkin Cannon and all that, you know, miserable corruption down in Florida around that. But, you know, there, there was certainly sufficient evidence that the government had about Mar-a-Lago. I suspect there's probably every investigator is probably thinking, well, I, I bet. I, I mean, personally, I, I think Trump still has classified information socked away somewhere. Whether he's keeping that in a safety deposit box or in some weird, you know, overseas in in Scotland or, you know, some secret box hidden in Bedminster, you know, that suspicion, though, isn't enough. And that standard of information you need to obtain a search warrant is pretty high. And my my guess is investigators suspect there might be information at Bedminster or Trump Tower, but they just don't have enough factual evidence to get them to that standard to get a search warrant. And, you know, the last point I'd made with something you started about that this is... It is concerning about what Trump did with this information. And it's not just a concern about like, what did he do with it and what sources and methods might have been damaged because of that past activity. The fact of the matter is, every single ally of the United States, every single country overseas is looking at Donald Trump's behavior, sees that he's the front runner, almost the presumptive candidate on the Republican side for the president. Seeing how he mishandles and treats sensitive information and saying, we need to assess what we're going to share and do with the United States. Because, yeah, you know, we can trust Biden. We can trust, you know, every other president in the history of the United States. But the fact of the matter, this crazy outlier of Donald Trump has a real decent chance of being back in the presidency in two years. So we need to protect our national interests by being probably a little more guarded about what we do and share with the United States. And so that's an ongoing harm right now. That's something that is, I I guarantee you, going through the thoughts of every one of our allies as they're sitting down and assessing their intelligence relationship with the United States. No no doubt that's the case. Um, If you have time, I'd like to ask you two more questions. Um, um, So question number one, I wrote a column a couple days ago. And essentially, the thrust of the column was this. In 2016, when you were uh, looking at the Russian connection to Trump, uh, getting Trump elected was kind of a nice-to-have for for Vladimir Putin because it would stir things up in the United States and and, and he, he thought uh, might benefit them. And getting Russian assistance uh, was kind of a nice to have when Trump called for it. Um, I'm not even sure at that point he really wanted to be president, but he was running. Um, so flash, fast forward now seven years. Um, getting reelected president is a need to have for Donald Trump. It's an existential necessity. If he doesn't, and he is found guilty, uh, or you know, or the, you know, he's in trouble. The cases will continue. If he becomes president, he can stop all of this. He can pardon his friends. He can pardon himself. So he he desperately needs to become president. For Vladimir Putin. He has waged this fiasco of a war in Ukraine. There is virtually no chance he can win or have substantial gains in Ukraine. 
unless one thing happens, and that is the U.S. leader changes and Donald Trump becomes president of the United States. And if Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, things can turn on a dime. Trump will drop, drop Ukraine like a hot potato. All this BS that Trump says, oh, I'd solve this war in 24 hours. Well, the war started in 2014. It actually way, it was waged through every single day he was president. He didn't do anything to stop it, except at one point to try to extort the president of Ukraine uh, and withhold funds to their military at a time that they needed them. So the, the, the motive for Trump and for Putin to um, both do what they can and with each other to achieve this goal is much higher than it was in 2016. Does that worry you as somebody who is expert in these matters? It worries me a tremendous amount. I, I, I agree with you that I think Russia's motivations are, are different and greater in supporting Trump than they were in 2016. I think in large measure 2016, their, at least their, their overarching goal was just to mess with the democratic process, to undermine Americans' faith in our voting systems and the equity or lack of equity in that. And that as a secondary motive as they looked and compared and contrasted Trump versus Clinton, they saw that, well, for Russia and Russia's interest, Trump would be a better, much better on balance uh, between the two. I think now, though, you're right. This is very much a, certainly looking at the Russian side, absolutely a far greater um, disparity of interest in terms of what benefits Russia, what harms Russia, and the difference in candidates from Russia's perspective is immense. And first and foremost are, and it's not just Ukraine. Ukraine is huge. I mean, Russia is losing a tremendous amount of manpower of resources. They are, you know, it's creating instability for the regime at home in Russia. It is creating a huge sink on the Russian economy. But even looking, it's more than just Ukraine. When you look at Trump's perspective towards the United States relationship with the EU and Western Europe generally, when you look at his commitment to NATO, when you look at his perspective on Russian energy exports and the view of, you know, what Russia should or shouldn't be doing and what we should or should not be doing to incentivize reducing dependence on Russian energy on the part of our European allies. Trump has a very different perspective, all of which benefits Russia. So, you know, yes, Ukraine, I think you're, you're absolutely onto a huge point that I haven't seen talked about much that both Russia and Ukraine have a tremendous amount riding on the next presidential elections. They are willing to do very different things. I mean, Ukraine obviously is, has nowhere near the resources that Russia does to sort of covertly or overtly bring to bear on the issue. But I expect Russia's involvement to be even greater than it was in 2016. And, you know, what they're willing to do, given the tenuous nature of, you know, the, the apparently imminent Ukrainian counteroffensive, which I think will prove to be devastatingly bad for Russia, I certainly hope. It proves to be devastatingly bad for Russia, but I think that will place Putin's grip on power in an increasingly tenuous position that for, for both of them, to your point, I think is, is you know, it, it could very much be the president's, the U.S. presidential race of 2024 becoming an existential issue for both Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in a way that was absolutely not the case in 2016. So I, I think that's a great point. And I think we ought to be ready. I hope at least the U.S. intelligence community is aware, I hope, of this and preparing for it. 
but the American people need to understand, you know, the, the stakes for foreign Russian interference in 2024 are just going to be huge. Through the roof. So last question. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, there are several ways I, I suspect you can approach it, but it goes back to our first question. Trump has called for defunding the FBI. Jim Jordan has called for defunding the FBI. Ron DeSantis has called for it. They, you know, the, 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 it has become almost a position of the mainstream of the Republican Party right now that the FBI is so politicized by apparently, in their eyes, left-wing sympathies that um, you know it needs to be shut down and we need to start all over again. Now, you must come at this from several different perspectives. Obviously, somebody who you know revered the institution enough to want to join it, who devoted a lifetime of service to it, um, someone who was then later caught up in the perversities of the Trump administration and 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 personally um, uh, damaged by it. Um, but, you know, there's one other thing which just is inconsistent with my 30 years of living in and about Washington and these worlds. And that is, I don't think at any point in the prior 29 and a half years, anybody thought the FBI was a left-leaning organization. You know, if anything, it's, it's the opposite. Uh, so I just, as, as, as the last question, I just interested in your reaction to, to, to what has now become a mainstream Republican view. Yeah, I mean, look, it's an absurd view. You're, you're absolutely right. My experience with the FBI is that it is a very conservative organization. People don't, you know, walk around and talk politics, but it's a conservative organization. It is, I mean, it is law and order, right? I mean, that is the FBI is the, the you know, the federal preeminent federal law enforcement agency in the United States. So the general population tends to view law and order generally from a, yes, it needs to be strong. It is appropriate to have a system of justice where laws are enforced and investigated and everything that flows from that tends to the conservative. There's never been a, a Democrat as a director of the FBI ever, ever go back to, you know, Hoover Ford, every single director of the FBI appointed has been a Republican period, full stop. And all these people who are complaining about the supposed liberal bias when I, you know, one of the objects of their ire was busy inv investigating Hillary Clinton in 2016, they had no problem. I mean, they were using that in campaign events, you know, the chance to lock her up and the FBI is going to throw her in jail. And the FBI was, you know, they probably weren't doing enough to investigate her. But now, now that it's Trump's crime that's being investigated, suddenly it needs to be abolished. This has absolutely nothing to do with the political leanings one way or the other about the FBI. The entirety of this dialogue is driven by the fact that they are protecting one man, Donald Trump, because they didn't, you didn't hear the same outcry when various, you know, lower level Republican or Democrats, you know, whether governors, congressmen, whoever get investigated and occasionally thrown in jail or not. You never heard this outcry until it came to investigations of Donald Trump. This entire exercise is designed to prevent the American system of justice from effectively investigating his crime, I believe, which occurred, and then prosecuting him for that crime, which I believe that occurred. It, so, so it's it's all a just a a partisan exercise, 
And what shocks me is that it has gone to such an extreme. I, I don't think anybody, you know, you take you know, back when I was in the army in the early nineties, there's some idea that the Republicans would be calling for defunding the FBI. I mean, that's crazy. I don't think any of us looking back at uh, sort of the expectations of what you think you would hear from a political party that you would ever associate Republican party defund the FBI. And, and so it's nonsense. It is a bald political ploy to protect Trump. I think it has an adverse impact on the ability of the FBI to do its job. I think it decreases public confidence in the FBI to do its job. I think it is putting fear into the minds of investigators. You know, this recent article that Trump had asked people to, to identify prosecutors and investigators on Jack Smith's team because he wanted them fired on day one as soon as he returned to the presidency. I mean, it's one thing if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're an investigator, you're already facing threats of physical violence because of Trump's inflammatory statements and behavior. And now the prospect of losing your job if he's reelected simply because you dared investigate violations of law from any man, it just, it's an astounding attack on our system of justice. And it's unfortunate that an entire party is bought into it. And I don't know that it goes away until Donald Trump is no longer a, a mover and shaker in the political scene. No, no doubt that's the case. Um, it's, it's great of you, Pete, to take the time uh, to go into this at such depth. Uh, one of the reasons that we created these podcasts, which we've been doing uh, for eight, nine years now, but this particular uh, incarnation for six years, is to be able to go and get more in-depth than people get um, on cable news, uh, spend more time diving into these questions. Uh, and I think anybody who listens to this today uh, will will come away with why that's so valuable. Hope, hope we can see you again. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy uh, your summer. And uh, to everybody else who's been listening, uh, if you want to support what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. I think it's $5 a month, and you get lots and lots of bonus content um, and uh, high-quality uh, insights you won't get anywhere else. So we encourage you to do that. For now, thank you, everybody, and uh, come back again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>